five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hi, space enthusiasts. So, the topic for this week is military space. Now, the military has been part of space exploration ever since we started doing that, and it continues to be very important, including as a major customer of and sometimes even investor in commercial space companies. So it makes sense that we spend some time on this podcast talking about military space. I suspect there will be a few episodes on this, but my first guest on this topic is Professor Blevin Bowen from the University of Leicester. He has literally written the book on military space, aptly called War in Space, and he will soon publish another book. We talk about his books, the recent establishment of the U.S. Space Force, how it can think about space as a defense domain, about relevant space capabilities, and a few other things. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator, their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Welcome back, space enthusiasts. We have another exciting episode today. It's one of our non-business episodes, which long-time listeners know that means I'm not interviewing the CEO or founder of some space company, but somebody else important from the space community who has very interesting things to talk about. So in this way, I welcome today to the episode uh, Professor Blevin Bowen from the University of Leicester, who's researching military space. Is, is that correct, Blevin? Uh, yes. Hi, Rafael. My name is Blevin Bowen. I'm an Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Leicester in the UK, and I specialize in the military uses of outer space, military space technologies, and the international relations of outer space writ large, uh, really. T terrific. So again, I think that's a very interesting topic. Um, most of our listeners will know it's probably a very timely topic as well. I mean, people will remember we had in, I believe it was November last year, we had yet another anti-satellite tests mm. by the Russians. Obviously, in the last few years, we have seen things like the establishment of the newest branch of the US military, this, the Space Force, uh, members of which are called Guardians. Quite cool, mm. I think, actually. Um, I think the, the French have also established their version of the Air and Space Force. And so it seems to be a big topic. Why, why is this happening now, Blevin, you think? Why is, why is this focus on the space domain as a military domain happening? So I think it's important to start with the US Space Force with that. Mm. So what the US Space Force uh, decision really was, was a bureaucratic reorganization of what the US military uh, already does in space. Um, mm. It's not a new massive investment program in brand new capabilities or an, a, a massive break in US policy or strategy when it comes to outer space. It's new uniforms, new bureaucratic structures, 
new promotion career pathways within the department of the air force because the space force is like the marine corps is still in the navy um the space force is like a semi-independent corps within the department of the air force mm. but it's more autonomous now and, and so a lot of that bureaucracy has, has now sort of morphed in the pentagon and space and military space is more distinct bureaucratically and culturally now perhaps within the pentagon so what you're seeing from countries like france um, but australia south mm-hmm. korea britain as well is you have sort of a mirroring of more space bureaucratic distinctiveness within military ministries to make it easier to liaise with the new structures in the Pentagon. So uh, in the UK in particular, the the UK military forces are massively dependent on the United States for its military space infrastructure from Mm -hmm. GPS to uh, space-based imagery and surveillance and uh, reconnaissance and communication systems. And it's just, it's easier than if your bureaucracy has greater coherency and equivalence in your bureaucracy with the Americans. So that's easier for the Americans to find out who do I call, who's my opposite mm-hmm. member with the Space Force. Um, mm-hmm. So so, so there's a very quite boring political bureaucracy issues going on here. The interesting thing with the US Space Force creation is that it was never very clear when it was being set up by Donald Trump and Congress which problem it was actually trying to solve. Um, Mm. So there was a lot of talk about Russia and China are investing in military space capabilities, and they cited that as a reason for Space Force. But that's been happening for about 20 years anyway, and you don't necessarily need to have a separate service to deal with what another country is doing. Um, Mm -hmm. So the other sort of... A lot of people have been talking about having an independent or a semi-independent space force or corps in the US military for about as long as the US Air Force has existed, you know, from the 1940s. Right. And they've been talking about the promotion pathways in the US military, saying the air people keep taking over space in the Pentagon. Um, Space is never going to be taken seriously so long as it's dominated by pilots, for example. Um, And that's been a big complaint of the space cadres within the US Air Force of old for for decades. So there's a military culture element to that there. That's why many people in Congress supported Space Force. They thought um, if the military is going to do space properly, they might need to be left alone more and not be dominated by a military culture from a different environment. Yeah. Um, and another argument was that space military acquisitions, so the process that the Pentagon and Congress funds and buys and acquires new capabilities and hardware from US industry is totally broken. So therefore, will a new military service fix those problems or is it better to have a new system in place? From what I've been able to read so far about it, it looks like they've copied the same acquisition structure from the Air Force. So if that was a problem they were yeah. trying to solve, they've not solved that. Um, yeah, so, I suspect but, they'll but, be buying from lots of the same people as well anyway. Exactly. So, so in the years to come, when people ask, has the US Space Force been a success? Well, if there hasn't been an actual shooting war, they'll be measuring the success on has it made these things in the Pentagon better or not? And it looks like the Space Force wasn't properly designed to do any of those things. So it'd be very hard to determine whether the Space Force will be a success by those yardsticks because yeah, they didn't really yeah. set out to solve those problems because 
Donald Trump jumped on a bipartisan movement in Congress. So, so let me come back to a question you asked in the middle, um, which is basically that people were wondering which problem the Space Force should solve. So as a non-expert, let me maybe give you my possibly naive potential answers to that, and you can tell me whether this is valid or not. So in no particular order, I can think probably of three or four. One is the stuff we, we know, which is like using space as a higher ground, as a vantage point, right? So like we see the satellite uh, images uh, of Ukraine, right? And this kind of things, but also you could use remote sensing for missile detection and defense. Obviously you already mentioned uh, the GPS or generally speaking the GNSS, the navigation satellites. So I think that's one. Then speaking as a space venture capitalist, right? So I'm obviously very optimistic about the commercial development of space. I'm seeing we're having more and more commercial value up in space, right? And objects of commercial value. So part of me thinks, well, space what makes sense because, you know, on Earth, on the Earth's oceans, we have the um, US Navy and other navies protecting things of commercial value in the oceans. So it makes sense to me we should have something similar protecting the assets in space. That would be another one. And then maybe a little bit further in the future would be things like, um, you know, strategic locations, including for um, resources in space and kind of protecting or even taking possession first of these locations. I don't know what any thoughts on, on those potential use cases. Um, none of those really require um, an independent service to do them properly, really. Mm. Um, there's nothing inherent or automatic about a new service that will mean they'll do it better because it, it comes down to effectively the resources you put into doing that to realizing what your political goals are and then the people that you're putting in place and whether they have the political support needed to do that because they will always find opposition on that last point on space resources um as in physical resources not like mm. a spectrum or anything um, yes yeah that's politically a, a, like a non-issue right now it's something i will happily talk about with my students uh like outside of class um mm -hmm. and like or like with friends in the pub or something but in terms of serious political analysis off-world resources is something for the very distant future um it's not a practical problem right now now you we can have a problem maybe 10 years or so if china and the united states decide they want to put their south pole lunar missions in yes. exactly the same spot but uh, but that would be for the purposes of scientific exploration and also possibly in situ resource utilization not really you know starting to mine everything and make loads of money out of it it would be like if the united states and the soviet union wanted to set up an antarctic research station at exactly the same place yeah um you know where mcmurdo is uh, for yes. example so it would be that sort of scientific international scientific project dispute really I, I think that would be something much much later on if it ever becomes significant and we don't know if it will um it's very very <laughs> hypothetical at this stage yeah in terms of the corollaries to like the naval the naval analogy yeah i mean it's it's intuitive the the idea of a space force to exercise military power through space and to and from space to protect um, the commercial interest in Earth orbit. Yeah, it makes a lot of intuitive sense, and that is the basis of my own PhD thesis and my, my first book as well, which is about strategic military concepts in outer space and how space is quite like, or Earth orbit is like a coastal environment. Yeah. Um, and the way we think about coastal warfare does translate to useful ways to think about space warfare. So, so there's a lot of intuition there. 
And then the high ground thing, well, again, you don't need a space force really to do high ground stuff if, if, if you know if you don't want to. And um, um, so there's nothing inherent to needing a separate service for that. The US Air Force had been doing it already for decades, arguably. Mm. But then I have my own reservations about the idea of the ultimate high ground in space, uh, which, um, yeah, I, I criticize a lot in the next book coming out uh, in October this year. Yeah. And uh, speaking of your books, and we should of course mention it. So your first book, um, I believe, was called War in Space, and that's already available. And your next book, which I think is coming out in October. is Yeah, in called... October in, in uh, UK and Europe, and then uh, February 2023 in the United States and the rest of the world. And that's, uh, I think, uh, Original Sin. Was that yes, the Original Sin, Power, Technology and, and War in Outer Space. Okay, terrific. So both broadly speaking about warfare and war strategy in space, one already available, the other one I think can be pre-ordered. You'll put the links to both of them in the, in the episode yes, notes. Yes, so if you're outside of Europe, you can pre-order at Oxford University Press. Now, if you're in Europe, you can order through your favorite bookshop, now and it should be live on i think amazon very soon the publisher should be taking orders pre-orders very soon as well as we're getting close to release date so it's with hearst publishers in europe okay terrific um, I want to come back to the uh, the analogy of sort of like coastal um, warfare and all of that, but I realized I forgot to ask you a question, which I should have asked at the beginning. Like, how did you actually decide to focus on that? What was the story there? How did you end up focusing on, on military space? Well, I I studied international politics and um, and did plenty of war studies as an undergraduate student mm -hmm. at uh, Aberystwyth University uh, in Wales, um, and as part of studying modern warfare, you learn about military uh, technology and especially US military technology and a lot of that relies on space systems and decades of experience in using space for military purposes I, I guess that's 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 how I got into it I realized I could actually do stuff about space in mm -hmm. my academic field um, mm -hmm. and um, you know not be laughed out of the room yeah, um, yeah. because you talk about space warfare people think of sci-fi and all that stuff but when no actually it's 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 a it's a thing that has a long history and concepts through the cold war and, and then into, into the modern era and military space technology is only spreading and uh, yeah so i always liked space as, as a kid growing up you know of course i watched plenty of star wars and star trek as a kid watched plenty of space documentaries uh, and all that um <clears throat> but but yeah it was only in my um undergraduate student years then that i started properly getting into military space and in my postgraduate years then every time I had an opportunity to set my own assignment I did a space version of whatever that module was about so mm -hmm. one module I did in my master's again Aberystwyth was on European security so and you could set your own questions so I did it on European integration and space as a form of security etc and then I did my PhD on military theory and philosophy in outer space. Terrific. And so coming back to some of these analogies we're talking about, specifically analogy to the world's ocean and navies patrolling the oceans. So I, I kind of like, you know, intuitively grasp that analogy and I use it a lot in conversations with people about, you know, the potential role of the Space Force. But then I catch myself that sort of like, I don't actually know what that means in certain aspects. So for example, you were talking about, you know, like there's monitoring, there's enforcement and all of this. What would be the equivalent of like carrier groups? In space, how would how should one think about the 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 the, 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 the space assets a you know, space force needs to have? Yeah, well, the, there are no equivalents. So every, every analogy breaks at some point. Um, mm. It's it's inherent to the idea of an analogy. An analogy is is something that um, you know two two different things 
that, that, that are different but have some interesting similarities or useful similarities to think about. So I think the weapons platforms and the technologies, those are the things that don't translate, um, the very detailed technical stuff. Um, but the idea, that the starting point for the analogy is that uh, it's an environment that people can't live in, but through which important political and economic and military effects or resources or communications travel through. Um, and you can manipulate those lines of communications um, between the points of interest, in this case, on Earth. And that really is the fundamental uh, analogy. And, um, you know, a few people obviously were cottoning on to this um, in the early space age. You know, I, um, you know it's, a, it's a fairly fairly common basis for strategic thinking in space. And, and what, what, what I did in my PhD was try to point out how, yeah, some of those basic concepts about the blue water oceanic thinking about space is useful and important, but we're really talking about Earth orbit when it comes to practical space warfare and yeah. space infrastructure. You know, beyond 40,000 kilometers altitude, space is economically, militarily meaningless. There's nothing of practical value beyond that. So we and, and it's a it's a coastal environment. It's it's close to Earth, and what happens there is very intimately affected by what happens on Earth, and then and then uh, vice versa. There's no distant expanses really when we talk about Earth orbit, um, relatively speaking. Um, yeah. Especially when communications travel the speed of light, you're only affected by the number of satellites you have in a particular constellation and the number of ground stations and terminals uh, that you have, and if you have global communications networks things travel at the speed of light and around one planet that is very very quick mm. um and you know very intimate and you know satellites are part of the global web of infrastructure that has strategically shrunk the size of the planet in terms of distance between people and destruction and cut the consequences of their actions or inaction so um and that coastal environment also stresses that that Earth orbit is very vulnerable to weapons fire from Earth in the same way that coastal mm -hmm. waters are. Um, when you're out in the open seas, you're actually quite secure from what land powers can do against your navies. Mm -hmm. When we think about space warfare today and in the foreseeable future, satellites, especially in low Earth orbit, are very vulnerable to weapons yeah. fire of different kinds from the Earth's surface. Yes. Electronic warfare or uh, kinetic or explosive anti-satellite missiles they are quite vulnerable, um, and you don't need to be a big space power or have loads of satellites in space um, to really cause problems for other space powers. You can start having, you can you can cause lots of problems with terrestrial methods if you want to. So it's about being more specific in the analogy, which is what mm -hmm. I'm doing with the coastal analogy. If you want to do the oceanic blue water stuff, you have to start going to like the moon and beyond, where you start getting these sure. big expanses. Yeah between places of interest. But this is, uh, like you said, like there's no, well, there's nothing of real commercial value there yet. So we wouldn't expect uh, military interest. I guess once maybe, you know, we have a settlement on Mars and people start commercial exploitation in some decades, that of course could change. But for the moment, I agree it should be. Maybe, but office. then even then, if it's like just, um, if it's just a McMurdo station sure. on the moon or Mars, even then it's like, yeah, it's nothing, nothing worth fighting over, is it? Yeah, no, correct. No, nobody's fighting over the Antarctic Research Station. Just put some scientists you don't want uh, anywhere near your university there. <laughs> so um, with this coastal analogy, uh, keeping this in mind, um, if you talk about specific capabilities, um, 
what what do you consider some of the, the the key capabilities to keep in mind? You know, I can think of course there's like launch capability, there's the, the satellite constellations. Um, you mentioned ground stations, I think already. Um, um, I guess maybe a space situational awareness, right? The ability to understand what's going on that strikes me as a big one. I think you cover most of it there, really. Um, now this is putting me on the spot because I've structured um, the new book, Original Sin, around the the early the, the sort of the first half of the book. Really, is about the key, the, like histories of the key technologies happening and that were developed around mm-hmm. the world um, from the dawn of the uh, of the of the space age to today. And um, so I go through major technology types there as just a way of organizing how to understand the space age so yeah launch obviously uh satellite communications intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance or earth observation as it's called in the civilian world Mm -hmm. Uh, you know monitoring earth through manipulating light or other forms of of um, energy emissions um and sensors and then there's satellite navigation of course Mm -hmm. and Space situational awareness, um, which can be done in space or on the ground, of mm-hmm. course. Um, the relevant ground infrastructure, as you mentioned. And then, of course, uh, the weapons. Um, and those are sort of keys, what we can call space technologies, um, really, that if you want to be a sovereign, one of the bigger powers in space, you have to be good at all of those things and have a lot of all those things. And... You know, the United States and China um, clearly fit that right now. Mm-hmm. Russia, you know, still does for now. Whether Russia can maintain um, its position in the decades to come remains to be seen because the sanctions, uh, you know, even mm-hmm. before 2022, were taking a massive toll on the Russian space sector. Um, and they're just not going to have that much money spent to keep up with the high-tech Chinese and uh, U.S. stuff, but also to keep up with um, the targeted investments made by European countries and uh, Japan as well, mm-hmm. possibly mm-hmm. even South Korea. Um, you know, South Korea is starting to get really in- interested in more of its own space capabilities now. So yeah, so that's a general list of major major space technologies. And if you're not China, Russia, or the United States. Um, you can still be a significant power and you might have capabilities in some or most of these areas, or if you do, you don't have a massive depth of capabilities. Mm. So India is very interesting. So India, I would say, has you know, a presence in all of those technology areas, mm-hmm. but the depth and perhaps the quality is not the same as the United States, of course, especially you know, the, the depth of it. You know, they just don't have as much of what the United States has. And it's safe to presume that the United States still has the best technology as well when it comes to space. Um, yeah. I mean, it's hard to know for sure because so much of it is classified. Classified, so, yes. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'm not a technologist, so I'd struggle to read the actual technical details if I did get, get a hold of them. Um, so, so other countries then have specific advantages. So France, for example, um, is the lead launcher in Europe. I know that they talk about European launch and the European yes. talks about European autonomy, but you know France really does put in most of the money into that. But France also has significant military intelligence and communication satellite capabilities as well. Again, not of the same scale as, United, as the United States, but the key technological competencies and capabilities are there. 
Um, Italy as well is significant uh, in Europe with its um, communications uh, and military uh, intelligence systems uh, as well. So, um, yeah, so so there's a lot of different kinds of technologies going around, and then smaller countries are investing in very specific areas to their needs or in the gaps in the global space market that they think their companies can do. So Finland's ISIS synthetic aperture radar is an interesting example of that, of a, you know, a small country, but with one big um, space imagery company actually doing doing really well. Yes, yes. And I guess since uh, we're usually a business podcast, I have to also ask, you know, sort of potential role of you know, space entrepreneurs and startups and all of this, because of course, one part is going to stay with the big, you know, traditional defense companies like Lockheed and Boeing and so forth. But there could be a role for startups as well, right? And actually, I have noticed that we're now seeing, I think pretty much in the US for now, only the emergence of what I would call space defense companies. Uh, you might know there's, for example, a company in the US uh, relatively recently founded called True Anomaly, which basically seems to be exclusively focused on space defense systems. Um, defense, because I guess offense is still technically illegal. Well, I would say that, I mean, the norm is that space companies are defense companies. One of the key points I make in, in Original Sin is the space age has always been militarized. Mm. If it wasn't for the military-industrial complexes of Very several true. countries, not just the superpowers of the Cold War, but several mm. countries, we wouldn't have had the space age that we've had. They were never going to spend that much money to build all those rockets and fancy equipment just for some scientists' hobbies and dreams of spaceflight. They were yeah. on the back of investments in nuclear space and missile technologies for military purposes. So all the big space companies today are in the military-industrial complexes of their countries and their regions. So Airbus, Lockheed Martin, Boeing. Mm. Um, and then the new companies coming through, so SpaceX, OneWeb, mm. they want a piece of that pie. Yeah. I mean, I get quite annoyed by all this talk about a new commercial space age. No, they're just getting in on government contracts. They want more of that same government money being spent. So look at SpaceX's business model. Well, the launch system, uh, the, the crude launch system, they just wanted to break the monopoly that United Launch Alliance had as the sole government contractor for crewed spaceflight for NASA and also national security payloads for the US government and military. They've successfully broken that monopoly with their reusable first stage technologies. So their Starlink satellite system, their biggest client right now is the Pentagon. Yeah, that's very interesting, right? I mean, that's I think everybody, including myself, we have thought from the beginning of starting a sort of a consumer-facing uh, business model, but it's become so impressively clear. Talking about capabilities, that's a very strategic capability, right? Because it's, it's very useful. Yeah, it's the same as the Iridium satellite phone company. Um, again, that went bust, and it was bailed out uh, by the Pentagon. Yeah, right? because it's a very useful capability for the military to have. You know, wireless uh, phone communications. So. Um, a greater amount of um, SATCOM now with in broadband internet in more remote places is, is is useful for the military. We're seeing the same with OneWeb right now. You know, the UK government led the bailouts of, of yeah. OneWeb from bankruptcy. And again, if I'm not mistaken, again, I think its major client is the Pentagon. That's its, its single biggest customer on its books now is the Pentagon. Again, yeah. just wanting more bandwidth. You know, the Pentagon is amazingly hungry for bandwidth. Um, yeah. And yeah. if you can provide more secure bandwidth as well, then, then all the better. So, um, so I think when we look at, 
you know, the so-called new space economy, where is the actual money for that business model coming from? More often than not, it's from government contracts. I'm Welsh, I've got, you know, quite a social democratic leaning. You know, I'm not a natural capitalist, so I'm not complaining that, you know, government is big in terms of spending in space. It, for me, it's about, it's the reality mm-hmm. of the situation. And I think a lot of people have got run away, running, running away with imagination because they see a lot of these startups, but they're not looking at where the money, where the revenue is actually being generated. It's being generated by government spending, buying services that, they think can be provided by the private sector. Yeah, no, that's, that's that's certainly so true and probably will be for for a while going forward. So coming back to Starling, I so one interesting thing about Starling and to some extent OneWeb as well is just um, it's just talking about capabilities because when I talk about military capabilities, the next thing or the next question one should ask is like sort of the vulnerability of the capability, right, to basically denial of that capability attacks. And I guess one thing that makes Starling so interesting is because it's such a big constellation, it's just extremely resilient. It's, it's, there's no longer one big satellite that adversary can take out, right? It's You would have to take out thousands of satellites, or maybe at least like hundreds of dozens to kind of... Um, yeah, against, the kinetic, yeah, against a kinetic kill attack, like a missile going up and actually blowing up a satellite. Yeah, that's not how you take out a distributed satellite constellation because you wouldn't even do that with Iridium because Iridium has, what, 66 uh, active or essential satellites at any given time. That's not how you do it, but that doesn't mean that there are no vulnerabilities. You you, you would go for the, I guess, terrestrial control centres or something, I'm guessing. So you obliterate Starlink's ground stations, if you can. Now, the interesting thing is with Russia and Ukraine, Russia isn't going to send some missiles to destroy the Starlink ground stations in, like, NATO countries. Not not a good idea. Well, let's hope they won't, but, you you know, bet not because of political consequences would be huge for that. But depending on the scenario, you know, we have to think about situations beyond just what we've seen already. But that is one way. You attack the ground stations to you engage in persistent local jamming. Uh, mm-hmm. So electronic warfare or cyber operations, those are sort of the the, the ways you try to disrupt or harass um, that kind of network. So, but they, but they have you know, pros and cons to them. Um, electronic warfare and cyber warfare are games of cat and mouse. Um, there are many methods of attack. There are many methods of defense against mm. cyber intrusions, against frequency hopping. But also it's really difficult as outside observers to make sense of the practicalities of this because they are such closely guarded details for, for obvious reasons. So we can understand the basic principles of how to jam a satellite communication system but you're not going to know exactly how vulnerable a specific system is because one, mm. they are important for military security, but two, massively corporate, uh, you know, corporatively, um, they are very corporate sensitive data as well because nobody's going to buy a system if everybody knows that your system can be jammed very easily. Yeah. Um, so we're never going to know the exact details of how how resilient is Starlink to jamming. There's been some stuff out there, but um we have to we'll have to wait many many years before we find out for sure um what has happened in 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 ukraine but um so so electronic warfare cyber are the ways you go about it and um not not the physical kinetic kinetic stuff is there other um key capabilities that you think are vulnerable i guess one obvious one that springs to mind is um, again on the ground not in space is, is this uh, mysterious cut off the uh, small board uh, satellite cables um 
Well, the whole undersea cable thing, I mean, that's been a concern since you know, the, the cables were first laid. Mm. Um, so again, it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's weird how that's in the news again um, because it's always been a problem and it's like a normal maritime capability thing. If, well, if you've neglected, neglected your ability to prevent or respond to maritime cable uh, disruptions, then, well that's your neglect. Like mm. every, this has been a known problem and a threat and a risk for, you know, well over a century, you know, a century yeah. and a half. So, um, so yeah, uh, when it comes to space, well, I mean, there's no, um, there's no sort of easy single point to, to really attack, especially if you're going up against say the United States, which has such an elaborate military space infrastructure, so many different points, so many different constellations, that it has access to or directly controls. When you put the United States and NATO countries together, that's the lion's share of most you know space-based hardware that there is. But so so, and I think a lot of analysis in the in my area, military security area in space, they tend to want to look at or find simple off switches or yeah. the silver bullet. That's really not how it works. You know, the closest we ever got to that was with nuclear weapons. But then everybody gets a silver bullet in that situation, yeah. and so it's not really a a, a useful a useful thing for military planners. So I, I think in terms of bottlenecks of capability, some sense some capabilities are more sensitive than others. Like I'd be very concerned if in a Taiwan crisis, China perhaps would attack the infrared uh, ballistic missile detection early warning radars that the Americans have, and I think there's only only six of them, um, mm. two of which are in highly elliptical orbit, and then four of them in geostationary orbit. So there's not a lot of them. Could try and do a coordinated co-orbital, you know, stalking, hunter-killer satellite. Mm. Um, now, that's not going to be subtle. I'm not saying it's going to be a surprise, but, but if you do it, and because the Americans are so reliant on that for their nuclear early warning, you're looking at, you know, potential escalation risks to nuclear war there. That those systems are so useful for non-nuclear war fighting that the Chinese have lots of conventional reasons, conventional military reasons to disrupt or attack those satellites mm. to affect the course of battles over Taiwan or South China Sea or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, so there are some specific areas of capability where, yeah, there's not a lot of satellites and they are really important. Mm. Um, another one would be the AEHF, the Advanced Extremely High Frequency Radio um, uh, Communication Systems that the Americans use for nuclear command control. And it's it's um, um, I think there might be another one uh, these days, but AEHF has been around for a long time, and it's one of the last links in the nuclear command and control chain for the U.S. president. If all of those go dark. At the mm. same time, which is, you know, there's not a lot of them, but, you know, it's it's not good. And that's very different to, say, losing one, like, um, keyhole imagery satellite. Yeah. Because, you know, you're not really compromised. You're just going to be, you're just going to lose out on a particular kind of imagery for a certain amount of time until you can divert other things to take its place or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. So some satellites are more important and sensitive than others if they were attacked. 
Yeah, with only just mentioned, I mean, if that's the case, I mean, that's 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 strategic, right? Because that sounds like it could deny your second um, uh, um, second attack capability, or your capability. Not necessarily, no, no, because nuclear submarines are designed to work without autonomously. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Um, yeah. All they need to do is ascertain that the United States has been wiped out. And then they will respond with whatever the orders that they have, you know, and like the the British, that's the system the yeah. British have, you know, the, the letter of last resort is designed to work without any communication from London. Yeah. Um, so, so it won't avoid, it won't undermine second strike, but it may trigger a nuclear incident all the same. Uh, whereas yeah. it may not if it doesn't happen. <laughs> but, we, but, but that's the thing with nuclear war. We don't know how people will respond in the particular circumstances we might dream of. Yeah, fortunately, we don't have any sample. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, yes. But but we, we can't be mechanistic in the way we think about yeah. this. We, we, we can think about the risks and what does losing this capability mean for communication and risk and threat perception, but you never know how the decision makers are going to actually respond in the moment. You know, you don't know if the president gives the order to nuke someone, is everyone going to carry it out? I mean, yeah. they're trained to, they should, but... Yeah, yeah, hopefully yeah. things nobody will ever have to find out. But yeah. exactly. So speaking uh, speaking of the UK, actually jumping around a little bit, but I think actually the UK relatively recently put out. Uh, I think they called it like a space power joint doctrine. Oh yes, yeah, an updated version. Yes. Was there, was there any anything particularly interesting in, in that document? In that thing? I, I've not had a chance to fully fully go through it. I've sort of skimmed the sections. I mean, it's it's a if I if I remember correctly, it's the first time it's a separate document. So. In the mm. past, they had JDP 0-30, and that was the Air and Space Power Doctrine. Right. And they had an Air section first, and then they had a Space section. Now this is JDP 0-40, Space Power Doctrine, or Space mm. Doctrine, or whatever it's called. And it's it's a standalone space document. So, so it shows that continuing distinctiveness of space now coming through in at least the UK Ministry of Defence's thinking. Uh, you know, in many ways, like like all of these doctrine documents, like the Americans as well, it's 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 a primer, it's very general descriptions of the basic fundamentals of what is military space. So mm-hmm. for for your listeners who haven't done anything with military space before or are interested in it, it's not a bad document to read through because it'll spell out a lot of the key concepts and mm. um, and terms. And you know, and the way space systems are, are used, but for someone like me who's you know been in the, been in this area for a long time, you know, there's there's nothing really new there other than a bit more detail and a few more areas on maybe space operations and a bit more to to reflect on recent sort of defence papers from the UK, but um, but no massive shift in the UK Ministry of Defence's perspective. Okay. So co- coming back to good things to read for our listeners, so obviously we can come back to your books as well. Um, can you just briefly talk us through sort of what else besides the things we have already talked about, what, what else will readers learn in your in your two books? Um, yeah, so um, my first book is, is quite a dense academic book. Um, mm. It's not an introductory book. Um, it is it is an academic monograph, so I would not recommend that to people new to international relations and new to military philosophy, okay. um, and new to space as well. Um, it's, it is quite an advanced um, uh, book, but I'm, I'm happy to recommend um, introductory texts on space and politics uh, as well. But my second book, Original Sin, is designed to be more 
uh, accessible to a wider audience. So if uh, if you read a lot of nonfiction, if you read uh, things like The Economist or Financial Times or mm-hmm. um, uh, just uh, generally more, more involved, longer forms of writing about politics, history, um, security and military things, then hopefully the second book, Original Sin, will be uh, accessible to you. So uh, what I do in that book is basically talk through first about 70 years of a global space age and show Mm -hmm. how um and this is why this explains the title how the original sin of space technology is its militarized origins and heritage so we have a space age because Mm -hmm. of you know the sins of humanity humans are being violent towards each other Mm -hmm. um it's so the, the military origins of space um you know, we, we can't really get away from it today. And mm-hmm. a lot of people have a very benign image of outer space. They see it as a place of scientific international cooperation, a place where we can be better as people. You know, we can leave behind our sins on Earth. And many people have a sort of, a, you know, religious reverence for outer space. But that, in terms of those of us interested in the practical things about space or politics of space and how space actually affects people in the real world, we have to get rid of that benign image of outer space. Sure, we can enjoy those things about space that are good and that are benign, but for those of us interested in the real world, we have to recognise the horrible things about outer space and the legacies. So I'm sure most of your listeners will know about the V2 rockets. Sure. So even then, even though that history of the V2 rockets and the Mittelwerk labour camps, mm-hmm. um, the, the factory that you know killed more people building the rockets than were killed by using them on northern France and, and southern England, even then, there's still that disconnect between, you know, the horrors of the space age and the benign uh, sort of nice things about space, about exploration and human uh, testing and human pioneering and all that. Um, but also, we have to look at the, how space technology has not been created for not for the benefit of everyone the language of the outer space treaty is very universal it's about space has to be for the benefit of all Mm -hmm. humankind i mean nobody you know seriously disagrees with that sentiment it's a nice sentiment but the reality is different space technologies were first developed to enable some countries to get better at killing other people and a lot of space infrastructure has been built on sites of empire and colonialism and has disproportionately negatively affected people who had already been marginalised and dispossessed through, you know, the past 400 years of of, um, settler colonialism and imperialism. So, you know, a lot of these space launch sites are in former or current imperial holdings. That's not a coincidence. So so we have to, you know, know, I'm not saying we have to stop everything about space. That's not what I'm saying. It's that we have to understand about these negative aspects of space if we want to do things better going forward so mm-hmm. we can't ignore that original sin of space technology so uh, and then um so that's sort of the negative thing then in terms of the perspective is trying to show a global view of the space age as well anybody who has read about space history will usually have read about the americans and the soviets and maybe the sputnik and the moon races mm-hmm. uh, which is which is fine that's the well-worn path what I've tried to do is put that in its strategic and global context, saying these were just spin-offs of a thermonuclear missile um, era in 
in military competition and not just between the superpowers, but it included France and Britain, China, mm -hmm. Japan and India as well. So those are the six powers that I focus on in that sort of international history of military space um, and the emergence of economic infrastructure in space as well. And then I finished the book then by looking at what, is all, what all these space technologies and histories mean then for conflict and war in outer space um, and um, how to better think about the place of conflict in space as a normalised part of war planning now for the rest of us and again looking at many different countries and what they're doing with military space systems not just the americans and not just the chinese or the russians terrific let's certainly very much look forward to, to reading it when it comes out in october and then and maybe we'll have another conversation in a year or two or so and actually review that in more detail and some of the events that have happened in the meantime um it, since we're winding down though i'm going to ask you um sort of the we talked a lot about history. I'm going to ask you about sort of the, the, the future, and it doesn't even have to be sort of the actual future, but um, our traditional last question on the podcast is always about science fiction. And are you a fan of science fiction? Do you, is there particular works you like? Is there even something that maybe ties back to warfare in space that comes to mind? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I read a lot of sci-fi. So um, I, I've enjoyed the uh, the culture novel series by Ian mm. M. Banks. Mm -hmm. um, I've read all of them apart from his last one uh, in the culture novels, and I'm, I'm saving that because I know it'll be the last one. I've watched the entire TV show, but I'm working my way through the novels of The Expanse series. Expanse. Mm -hmm. um, and I like The Expanse. I think it's one of the, the grittiest and most plausible depictions of <laughs> the future solar system. So, I, so I, I, I recommend that to my space politics students here at the University of Leicester. I think, I think that's really good. And it looks like a period of future history that is quite neglected in a lot of humans mm -hmm. in the future, where they might go interstellar rather than the solar system. So there's that. And Red Mars, the Red Mars trilogy, Kim, Kim mm. Stanley Robinson, very, very good really interesting you know on the politics of uh, terraformation um, yeah. but the only thing i think that's dated the book there is that china is totally absent from that story mm -hmm. um which you know arguably i think reflects i think you know stanley robertson's background and geopolitics at the time possibly but today that that irked me. Yeah, you'd write it in a different way. Yeah, yeah, but getting beyond that, that one little complaint is a fantastic trilogy. I recommend that. But in terms of um, also um, uh, outside of sci-fi, I would highly recommend people look at um, the International Politics of Space by Michael Sheehan. Um, mm. That is a really good introductory book on international relations in space. Um, if people want to do some serious politics readings, but but yes, I think th those are the main sci-fi things I've enjoyed the most um, in recent years. And I finally got to read um, Asimov's uh, Foundation trilogy as well, mm -hmm. um, and um, the and the other two books that came after the trilogy as well. So um, those are those were good classic foundational yeah. sci-fi works to read yeah those, those are all fantastic picks which i agree with and we put sheehan's book in the episode notes as well so if you know listeners want to delve into that they they know where to find it but Bethan, thank you so much this was i think a fantastic introduction into the topic as much as we can do in about 40 minutes or so but hopefully listeners find it useful and can follow up um, some of these uh, leads you've given if they want thank you so much for coming again and as i said maybe we'll do this again in a year or two and um, 
review some of the events that are bound to happen in the meantime in military space. That's been a pleasure. No, thank you so much for having me on. And yes, I'll be more than happy to return. Thank you. And that's a wrap for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. Once more, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platforms such as Apple or Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself, if you have an interesting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.